0: If you'd like, and I highly recommend you do this, you could open in your Bible to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be in Mark chapter 4, which we just heard read, the parable of the sower, verses 1 through 20. It's on page 839 in your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along there. And and as uh, we prepare ourselves, why don't I ask God's help and pray for us. Lord, thank you that uh, we all have access to a Bible in English. Uh, I pray for anyone, Lord, who can't read English, that they would have a Bible in their translation that they need in front of them, Lord. And God, we thank you that we have such easy access to revelation. God, may we not take it lightly, but make us eager to hear. So here are our ears, Lord. We know our hearts. Gets in the way of hearing, so please, too, Lord, form our hearts so that we can receive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Does God hide things? Does God hide things? We know God reveals things. I mean, He reveals His Word, He's revealed Himself and His Son. When we pray for God's guidance, we're asking Him to reveal the way we should go. When we pray and ask God to lead us, we're praying that He would reveal His direction for us. We, we know God guides and He leads and reveals. But does God also, along with guiding and leading and revealing, does He also confuse and obstruct and even conceal? Does God hide things? Jesus says that he does in this parable about the sower. And he says it in verse 12 by quoting something from Isaiah. And it was this particular verse that had me by the throat this week. I wanted to try to make it say something it didn't, but I just couldn't. So I want want you to see that. Jesus says in the middle of this parable, when he's asked to explain why he teaches in them, he says basically that at times the Lord acts in such a way so that people see but do not perceive, they hear but do not understand. Jesus isn't simply pointing out that sometimes people see and don't understand. We all know that. Jesus is saying that God acts in such a way to make that happen sometimes. This is exactly what Isaiah meant when he said it hundreds of years prior in Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And now Jesus quotes it. So so Jesus, right out of the gate, Jesus is referring to a sobering truth. And it's this. God's judgment sometimes takes the form of concealing things from us. And in fact, God's revelation, His Word, at times, it can unfold in such a way that it intentionally draws some people closer in while simultaneously pushing other people further out. So for those who bring to the hearing of God's Word pride, overconfidence, or apathy, That very word may stir in them greater arrogance or self-assurance or even indifference. Responses which not only further blind them to the truth, the truth about themselves and God, but responses that are in and of themselves judgments upon them. At times, God's word acts to draw the humble and hungry further into the light but the proud and self-satisfied further into darkness. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 11, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, notice, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. His gracious will was to hide things from people? Be careful. This is, I think, the first lesson that jumps out of the parable. We'll get into this more. Be careful, therefore, how you hear the word of God. For by your judgment of it, it is judging you. That's how the parables work. And this is the point, as we'll see, of the parable of the sower. It's a parable as much about hearing the word of God as it is about missing the word of God. It's a parable that's important. It's recorded in Matthew 13, Luke 8, and here in Mark 4, verses 1 through 20. And the passage, it really sets before us two exhortations. Number one, be careful how you hear. The passage is going to ask us, with what attitude or heart posture are you bringing to the hearing of God's word skepticism pride indifference that's the first exhortation be careful how you hear and second however and what I want us to hear even more loudly is that the passage finally says be eager be eager to hear the word of God like a miser for a coin like Smeagol for the ring in Lord of the Rings, like a starving man for a morsel of bread, Jesus is going to say, be eager for the word of God. So this parable is about the word of God. And it says on the one hand, be careful. And on the other hand, be eager. When Jesus tells the parable of the sower, he's well into his first year of ministry. And in Mark chapters 1 through 3, we've seen that Jesus is growing a very large following. However, and at the same time, as his popularity is growing, there's a rising criticism towards Jesus. Now, this is due in part to things he says. So if you remember from last week in Mark 2, Jesus said he had authority to forgive sins. He goes on in chapter 2 to say he has authority over the Sabbath. So religious leaders take offense at this. The Pharisees, in fact, are conspiring with the Herodians, these are people who follow King Herod, to, quote, destroy him, Mark 3.6. Jesus' family is concerned he's, quote, out of his mind, 3.21, and most severe, just Prior to this parable, religious leaders come up from Jerusalem and they make this damning statement about Jesus. Mark 3 verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. Now if Jesus is God in the flesh, which is precisely what Mark is arguing, here we have God's people calling God Satan. That's the atmosphere that brings us up to Jesus deciding to teach with parables. And what we see in Mark 4 is that Jesus decides to just face the criticism. And one of the ways he does this is by teaching with parables. It seems odd to us. Why is this a way to face critics? We'll see in a second. But the beginning of our verse, Mark 4, verse 1 and 2, we read the following. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. Jesus is a teacher. It's one of his main roles. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into the boat and he sat in it on the sea. The crowd's so big, he has to get in a boat to push out a little bit. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. Verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, it seems strange, I think, that Jesus' way of responding to critics is to teach in parables. I mean, these seemingly benign, friendly parables about farming hardly seem like a way to counter critics. I mean, parables are, are innocent things, are they not? When we think of parables, we think of Grimm's fairy tales. We think of Aesop's Fables, we think of heartwarming stories that are easy enough for a child to understand, but profound enough for an adult to get something out of. Parables are their lofty wisdom, made simple by being told in common, vivid images of everyday life. They're simple enough that simple folk like Galilean fishermen can understand them. But friends, if this is our view of parables, we are at best only half correct. And as J.I. Packer famously said, a half-truth masquerading as a whole truth becomes a complete untruth. Parables are dangerous. They're dangerous because they have a unique way of revealing the heart of the hearer and requiring a decision from them. They force the issue. Parables are dangerous. What we see as simply a story meant to instruct in the hands of Jesus becomes a sword that divides even right down the middle of someone's heart. Parables serve to further the divide. This is what's going on in Mark 4. The parables are serving to further divide between those who are leaning towards Jesus and those who are deciding to reject him. So notice how Jesus responds to his followers' inquiry about the parables in general in verses 10 through 12. So here's the basic structure of our passage. It goes 20 verses. It's a long one. But from verses 3 through 9, Jesus tells the parable. He's out on the boat speaking to a crowd. He tells the parable of the sower, right? Sowing seed, four types of soil. Only one takes the seed and grows. Okay, it really grows. Then, in the middle from verses 10 through 12, a small group, probably out in boats around him, get close and say, Can you tell us more about these parables? That's the section we're going to look on in a moment. And there he explains a reason why he teaches in them. And then in verses 14 through 20, Jesus explains this particular parable that it's all about the sowing of God's word. It is, in fact, a parable about parables. It's a parable about what I'm doing right now, preaching. It's a parable about the word of God and how we hear it. So his explanation in the middle is very important for understanding how Jesus uses parables and why they can be so dangerous. So picking up at verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Notice the knife coming out. But for those outside... Everything is in parables, verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is the first thing. I mean, doesn't that nail you? I mean, if you're paying attention when you're reading your Bible, you're like, wait, I thought parables were there to make complex truths simple, And Jesus is saying, no, they're also there to make people who are hard of hearing even more hard of hearing. He's quoting from Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10. So if you love the Isaiah throne room scene, and if you quote in your life Isaiah saying, here I am, Lord send me, this is what God sends him to do. It's a really hard calling. Read it in Isaiah 6 today. Jesus is picking this up and he's entering into it. And so What what we view as stories to enlighten the simple, Jesus sees as also riddles to blind the proud. And so we we might say the first lesson is this, which we'll have to unpack. For the proud, the self-assured, for those who are hearing with an eagerness to reject Jesus, Jesus' parables are actually a form of rejecting them. Now, how exactly does that work? Let me give you an example of how this works. If you flip back just one page in your Bible to Mark chapter two. In Mark two, verses 13 through 17, we have Jesus calling Levi the tax collector to be his disciple. For some, it's a well-known story. He calls Levi, and then he proceeds to eat at his house with sinners and tax collectors. This is verse 15 through 16. And the Pharisees are observing Jesus eating with these people, and it bothers them. They say, verse 17, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus responds with a mini parable. It's a little snippet of a scene that would catch the mind about a physician and sick people meant to convey a deep truth. So in verse 17, he goes on. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, here's where the parable proves dangerous. Here's where it's subtle, but devastating. Jesus knows that because the Pharisees are full of pride and contempt, not only are they not going to have dinner with sinners, but they're primed to misinterpret the parable. He knows they're going to hear the parable and read themselves in as the heroes. They'll say, oh, what Jesus means is that he's come for the sick and unrighteous sinners, the people he's eating with, but we, the well and the righteous, we don't need him. So they're gonna read themselves in to the parable in such a way that doubles their pride and in fact blinds them to the real fact that Jesus has come to call all men and women back to him because all are sinners and the religious elites of Jerusalem will be at the top of that list. And as you read the Gospels, ironically, it is going to be the religious leaders who prove the most blind that when they're looking at God in the face, they don't see him. You see how that works? The parable set a trap. We don't have time to look at this, but Nathan the prophet does this with David with the parable about the lamb back in 2 Samuel 12. Read that tonight. He lures him in based on his vainglory to to basically condemn himself. So the parables, you know, we we can recognize this. If you just think about um, a very egotistical person like me, right? I'm a sinner, right? It's hard pointing out other things, but, but a very egotistical person has a tendency, because of their ego, to read themselves into the hero of a story or to only be able to see themselves in a positive light when things unfold. Have you ever noticed that? And it's almost like their own ego continues to sabotage them into thinking too much of themselves, which in in fact doubles down their huge ego, which is the very thing that's making them sick. Pride lures the Pharisees into a misinterpretation that only furthers their distance from the truth. Friends, parables are dangerous because even as we read them, they read us. If we come to them with pride, we may mistake ourselves for the righteous in the story. And by doing so, we're judged as doubly sick. If we bring to them our own wisdom, like I'm really brilliant, this old, this old dusty text, let's see, put my bifocals on here. If we bring to them our own wisdom all the time, we may dismiss them as silly or too simple, and in doing so, find ourselves dismissed by them as the real ignorant. If we bring to them indifference, oh, a boring religious text, this is totally irrelevant. We may dismiss them as insignificant and in doing so find ourselves dismissed as irrelevant according to God's unfolding purposes that lie right before our eyes. Just as a seed is sown onto soil and eventually because it's sown onto that soil will reveal whether or not the soil's fertile. We'll find out if it can give growth. In the same way, when a parable is sown to the ear, it lies on the heart and it will reveal whether or not that heart is capable of receiving truth. The parables are dangerous because they reveal the heart and they require decision. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, you need to decide, are you in or out? And we're going to find out how you view your current inness or outness. I think that the religious leaders, if they were there on the shore and they heard Jesus teaching about the the sowing of the seeds, right, there's three bad types of soil. Satan snatches it away. You've got one that's in rocky soil. You've got one that's in thorny soil. And Jesus is explaining what's going on. And then you've got one good soil that produces an incredible crop. I think the religious leaders would sit there. And as Jesus talked about the bad soil, they'd point people out. Yeah, that guy. I haven't seen that guy at the temple. That guy never reads his Torah. That guy's Hebrew is terrible. And they would think, yeah, you know, I went into religious orders so that I could produce fruit. And I think... Perhaps look at all the services I've done to you, Lord. Look how perfectly I keep Torah. Look how perfectly I observe the dietary laws. Lord, I am producing fruit. And ironically, by the end of the gospel, Jesus will look at Israel's religious leadership and he will call them a barren fig tree. So the parables, they're not just friendly stories. I mean, you almost sometimes we want to plug your ears I mean, you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan and you're done. You're like, I've never loved anybody when you hear that. I mean, they just get you or you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan and you assume you're the Good Samaritan. I always help people and it's got you. It's got you. Now, so, so just the first exhortation, I think, from Jesus is. Be careful how you hear the word of God, for by your judgment of it, it is judging you. You know, um, when my sister turned 16, I have an older sister, three years older. I was 13. For her birthday, um, my mom did this trip um, to New York City to see Les Mis, okay, on Broadway. And I got to come and and invite my cousin, Joey, who's my same age. So we're two 13-year-old boys. And... I, I mean, I was bored out of my mind. I'm just gonna be honest. And I didn't know they would sing everything. I was saying, this is horrible, this is so boring. And so I, I got up with Joey and we left midway through and just walked around New York. Now, listen, friends, my judgment that Broadway was boring, that was a condemnation on me, not the actors. You see, that, that's kind of how the parables are working. We look at God's Son, and we're like, that's boring. God taking on flesh to die for us. Lame. Don't need help. That's a condemnation on the hearer, not on the Son of God. Now, if you're here today and you're, um, you're, you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're, you're, you're just here with a friend and you, you're not a Christian, um, this may sound like a really harsh teaching. I mean, you may be thinking, what? I mean, if Jesus is so kind, why wouldn't he always make the truth as accessible and easy as possible? Why wouldn't he always say, hey, Pharisees, you're prone to misinterpret. Just remember, you need me too. You're sick. Why, why wouldn't he do that? And to you, I just, I just want to underscore one thing. Throughout the Bible, this sharp edge of God's judgment through a particular type of teaching is almost always leveled at his own people, who have proved consistently rebellious and obstinate, especially people like me who are paid to be religious. Whereas on the other hand, you find God searching across all of earth to find one person who maybe in the slightest way would seek after him. You find Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, preaching a gospel. God has raised up a missionary, sent him to Athens, and he's preaching to these people who they just have the slightest openness of curiosity to the idea of God. God loves that. You have the Ethiopian eunuch. This guy is from Ethiopia. He doesn't know much about Judaism. He comes up to Jerusalem. He buys an Isaiah scroll. It's super long. He's riding back to Ethiopia. He can't understand it. God sends someone to him, Philip. To explain it to him. You see, friend, if if you are new to Christianity, I just want you to know all you need to bring is the slightest bit of curiosity to the Word of God. And he will move towards you. So if your heart feels the slightest bit of like, you're not just full of contempt. You're not totally tuned out right now. It could be that the Spirit of God, my sister or brother, is working on you. Because for the first time in your life, you will hear and hear. That's the first exhortation. Be careful how you hear the word of God, for by your judgment of it, it may be judging you. But Jesus goes on in this parable, outside of this kind of warning in the middle, and he makes it clear that his real emphasis is on hearing. So the second exhortation could simply be stated, be eager for revelation. Be hungry for it. We see in verse 3, Jesus opens the parable with the word, listen. He concludes in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. The word hearing is the main verb as you go through verse 15, 17, 18, and 20 in the explanation. It's all about hearing. After the parable, Jesus goes on in verse 21 to say, a lamp is not brought in to be put under a basket. Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest. Verse 22. Verse 23, if anyone has ears, let him hear. In in other words, Jesus is is saying, I'm the lamp. I'm the light of the world. I've come to be seen. So let's just ask, finally, what does it take to see? What does God? good soil seeing look like because you see Jesus describes four types of soil in his explanation and only the last in verse 18 and 19 is said to accept him I like that word I thought he'd use the word believe but it says accept him it's a word like taking someone to your bosom like Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his arms in Luke 2 When he receives Jesus in his arm, it's the same root word that Mark is using to say, you accept the truth, you hold it to yourself. What does that really look like? Let me suggest to you four keys to good listening. Number one, Jesus is key. It all starts and ends with what you see when you see Jesus. In in, um, 1979, a French officer made a significant discovery along the west bank of the Nile River. It was in a town called Rosetta. He discovered an ancient steel. It's a large stone. It had an inscription on it in three sections in three different languages. At the top, Egyptian hieroglyphics. In the middle, another form of Egyptian script called Demotic. At the bottom, Greek. Now, at the time, people couldn't read Egyptian hieroglyphics, not even close. They came to realize by reading the Greek that this was an inscription about a king in Memphis, Egypt from 196 B.C. And they were able to decipher that all the inscriptions said the same thing so they could use the Greek and middle text to decode the Egyptian hieroglyphics. This has become known as the Rosetta Stone, and it now stands for anything that becomes the essential clue that unlocks a field of knowledge. Jesus is the Rosetta Stone. If you do not see him right, you will not understand God, yourself, or the purpose of creation Correctly. That's why Jesus says in verse 11, before he says what happens to outsiders, verse 11, he says to you has been given the secret of the kingdom. These are, he's speaking to the, his disciples and the people close to him. What's the secret of the kingdom? It's him and then his willingness as Yahweh in the flesh to provide the teaching that unlocks their eyes, both to how to understand the Old Testament and how to understand what God is doing now. Now friends, to say that Jesus is the key to hearing means more than saying that you have a slight affection for a nice guy called Jesus. It, it means putting your faith in his person and work. It means believing in the gospel of the Son of God. It is by the gospel of the Son of God that we know who God is. Jesus is God in the flesh. So if you're, if you're here today, and I know we've had some wonderful friends visiting who, who know families here who are Muslims. If you're Muslim and you're here today, I'm glad you're here. I mean, there are very few places in the world that Muslims and Christians can sit together in a house of worship in peace. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Sure, Bishop Amos Madhu could tell us some stories where well, that's not always the case in Nigeria. But that's what our democracy has created. So while you're here as a Christian, I figure I might as well tell you the basic essence of Christianity to do you that favor to just say it all comes down to seeing that Jesus is God in the flesh. And if you're here today and you're Jewish, I want you to know that Christianity is really just the full blooming of Judaism. And I know that's offensive to some people, but if a preacher can't tell you the truth about Christianity, who will? And, and Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one that makes sense of all the stuff in the Old Testament about the need for forgiveness of sins, about God's holiness and man's sin and the sacrifices that keep going. And Jesus is the answer to the desire for Israel to have the glory of Solomon's temple, Yahweh, return. It's him. So if you're an atheist, If you're an atheist, you need to look at Jesus and ask, could this be God? But friends, if we don't see Jesus as God, we will not understand the parables. Because all the parables point away from us and towards Jesus. The gospel is the Rosetta Stone because it tells us who God is. It tells us who we are. Sinners in horrible need of salvation. Sinners who have been loved by God so much that he died for us while we were in sin. And it tells us the purpose of the world. Why does the world exist? To create a people who will forever worship God's Son in the beauty of holiness and be a new community, filling the earth with those who bear the image of Jesus Christ. It's the Rosetta Stone. So the the first key to hearing is you simply must ask, Who is Jesus to you? Is that the lens through which you see? Second, I just want to point out that hearing involves the head and the heart, that we're not here talking about Jesus like a Greek mathematician, like Pythagoras. I think that's how you say his name. Remember the Pythagorean theorem, right, Um, about triangles. Jesus isn't teaching us stuff like that. I mean, he likes that stuff, but that stuff doesn't really contend for your heart. He's not giving you directions or math equations. He's teaching you things that go through your brain right into your heart and confront you with the meaning of life, with the meaning of your life. And therefore, friends, an obstinate heart always gets in the way of an open ear. So, what heart are you bringing to your hearing of the Word of God? That's the second thing. Jesus is key. You need to have an open heart. Third, you need to pray. Hearing begins with prayer. Why is this? Well, it's because hearing requires a revelation of God. This is another huge paradox. Let me just tell it to you. Jesus is talking to the disciples. Later, Peter will finally get it. It's recorded in several Gospels. where Peter will say, you're the Christ. It's in all Gospels. They say, you're the Christ, the Son of God. In Matthew, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 16, 17. So wait a minute, wait a minute. We're supposed to hear the parable and understand it, but you're telling me that it requires the Father in heaven to reveal it. Friends, as Christians, you need to hold those two things together. We need God to do everything from the first to the last, and we're on the hook to work as hard as we can. That is a paradox that sits at the center of Christianity. But you need to pray. This is why I pray before my sermons. It's not formalism. It's not like an easy on ramp to public speaking. I pray because we're, I'm desperate for God to work. That's why we pray. We do the cog for purity to start the service. Because we're at God, please, please reveal to us the things we can't know on our own. So Jesus is the key. Open your heart to the Lord. Be prayerful. This is all posture for hearing. And finally, friends, last thing. Work hard at hearing. How eager are you to hear the word of God when you come to church on Sunday? Do you start getting hungry Saturday night? Do you get hungry during the week? You know, this is the one time when we're gathered and we're all listening to God's word together. And I I just want you to know what a privilege it is to get to preach the word of God to such a spiritually hungry congregation. I have friends that go into ministry and they'll tell me, my church, I don't think they care at all about the Bible. I see so many of you open the Word of God. This is a fruit of John Yates' ministry in the 40 years of faithfulness. I mean, this is a great honor for me. But friends, it, it's, it's worth asking, how hungry are we to hear the Word of God? You know, I listen to sermons like you do. I don't listen to my own. I don't like them. But... <laughs> But I, list, I have my preachers I like. And if you're like me, when you start to listen to a sermon, you go into evaluation mode. Well, maybe what's going on in a sermon is not that we're to be evaluating the preacher, but the word of God is evaluating us. That sounds more like Jesus teaching here. Friends, push through a boring 35-minute sermon and tell your kids to do it for that seven-minute nugget that God has for you. Be hungry, like a miser for a coin, like a starving man for food. Be hungry, be eager for God's revelation. Amen. You know, far more important than who is up here preaching, we have great preachers in this church. I love sitting under the other preachers. Far more important than who is up here is the fact that the Word of God is being preached. And you ought to always, we ought to always be hungry and eager. Jesus says, listen to what he's saying. So what type of hearer are you? How do you show up on Sunday? How do you show up in front of the word? Are you rushed, indifferent, self-interested, skeptical? Are you coming with your ideology from all the news you watch, ready to fit God's word into whatever sentence is already playing in your head, like the Pharisees? Or are you humble, open, and eager? For nearly 300 years, since 1732, the Falls Church Anglican has held out the word of God to this community, sown it. Through times of war at home, revolutionary and civil. Through times of war abroad, World War I and World War II and others. Through times of prosperity and times of great loss. There are preachers here during the Great Depression. We preached through the loss of all our property. And by God's grace, we will continue to sow the word of God until the Lord returns. So I just close with this. Again today, a sower has gone out and sown. And that seed now, friends, it's lying right on the top soil of your heart. And the question hanging in eternity is, will it be heard? Friend, do you bring a heart that can hear the word of God? Be careful how you hear the word, but even more so, be eager for the word of God. Those who are will increase 30, 60, even a hundredfold. The parable closes. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask forgiveness for every bit of it that we've treated as irrelevant, old-fashioned, or offensive. It's your word. We freshly submit to it, Lord, and we ask that you would be so pleased to let it grow in this church. We pray this in your name. Amen.